0: It really is a thrilling opportunity, isn't it, to be able to assemble in the way that we are. We, of course, always look forward to that here at the Pippin Congregation and so many other surrounding congregations do as well. The Word of God challenges us on seemingly every hand, setting before us not only the things that are wise and good for us, but, of course, what will lead us to that great homeland beyond. And we've already sung some great songs tonight that remind us of those truths. I would invite us to continue a series of lessons that we began last Sunday evening, touching the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. If you would be turning to that book again as we pick up that study tonight, these introductory thoughts will hopefully bring back to our thinking some of what we noted on that occasion, and we'll, of course, continue tonight with another lesson. Is Life Worth Living? You and I noticed that among the books of the Bible, of course, there are many who in one way or another touch that subject, but no single book sets the tone of that text before us like the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, you and I noticed about the middle of that slide, the problem of life in many ways is the central theme of the entirety of this book. Many throughout the ages have found challenges and difficulties with the book, and I think as you and I attempt to look at it through the lens of the entirety of the Word of God, we'll find that the messages in it are keen, meaningful, quite frankly profound. One of the first things you and I noticed is Solomon hits the ground strongly running in chapter 1, verse 2. Beginning the book, "'Vanity of vanities,' saith the preacher." Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? When you and I cast a spotlight upon that last Sunday night, we noticed at the outset he appears to give through the lens of what's beneath under the sun. The answer is no. Life is not a winning proposition if you only look at it beneath what's under the sun. And you and I began to see last time that that brings us to lift our vision, to look beyond the horizon here and find that deeper perspective and meaning in life, which, of course, the great God of heaven is able to offer. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, there's a notable monotony that's described, and you and I studied that last time. A monotony that touches not only the nature and the physical characteristics of the planet, but in some way it touches your life and mine, Work, for example, the seemingly endless character of physical labor is demanded of us. But to say all of that is to say, even as we noted then, there's so much more to be learned in this book, and we're going to pick up that study tonight. As we do that near the close of that slide, I'd like to insert this particular slide that asks of you and I To think about happiness, to think about if you appreciate a means of joy, it would be entirely fair to say that an overwhelming number of the human family find a keen interest in finding something that centers in their life an element in happiness. They want, it seems, as much as anything else to appreciate a sense of joy and a sense of happiness. None of us find it surprising. There are seemingly an almost untold number of supposed sources of this. You've seen the TV commercials as well as I, and you've read the newspaper articles, and you've seen the articles. Someone says, let me give you a diet. You just eat this diet, and I guarantee you you'll feel better. You'll have more energy, and you will appreciate more happiness. Another person says, let me show you what you need to do with your relationships. I guarantee you it will lead you to a deeper appreciation and a sense not only of value with that person, but you'll be a happier individual. Maybe it isn't food, maybe it isn't relationships, but you get the idea. So many supposed sources. It is the case that on that slide, the Bible uses various words on many occasions that bring at least to our mind understandings of these truths. You might notice with me, 286 times in the entirety of the 66 Bible books, the word rejoice or some form of it occurs. And of that number, 77 of them, as you can tell, are in the New Testament. And so it is that not only is this issue of happiness, of joy... Something that's interesting to us, God has an interest in it. The book of Ecclesiastes uses the word joy, or the word rejoice, or the word enjoyment, or something like that, 17 times in these 12 chapters. You and I have already read some of them, but we're going to look at some more of them tonight. And as you proceed further on that slide, let me interject the following. The New Testament has much to say about this issue... Let me borrow some of the verses and see if they don't ring strong bells for each of us. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4 verse 4. The shortest verse in the New Testament in Greek. 1 Thessalonians 5 16. Rejoice evermore. Isn't that powerful? Here was an inspired writer on that occasion, Paul... And as he addressed those comments to the church in Thessalonica, despite what they were suffering, and despite what circumstances prevailed in Thessalonica due to others such as the Roman Empire, those Christians were nonetheless not only encouraged, but commanded to be those who rejoice. To that we might add this. You recall with me the Beatitudes that are found in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Nine times over the course of verses 3 through 10, Jesus began sentiments like this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And one by one through the verses that follow, that word blessed highlights an element in not just a sense of well-being, but a matter in happiness. I suppose in light of all of that, The human family, of course, has had many opportunities to appreciate and approach what would be a consideration of happiness. Would you think with me about who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? We've already learned it was a man named Solomon. May I suggest to you that if ever there was any human being who had the opportunity at his disposal to avail himself of anything that the human family might assert that could lead to happiness, he would have the opportunity to test it. He would have the opportunity to try it. He would have the opportunity to conduct experiments, if you please, and know, did this make me happy or not? He had almost unlimited resources and money. Almost unlimited resources in prestige and commandment and power. Almost unlimited resources in light of his ability to acquire whatever he wanted. Let's devote the next few moments using Ecclesiastes and ask, Did it succeed? Was the experiment successful? Did it make him happy? I'd suggest that if only the world today in many ways could learn some of the lessons that we're about to consider our world would be a far happier place. It would be a far more devoted place in many ways. Look at what he tried. Would you come with me to chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes? We will cast a spotlight on the first 11 verses. Verse number 1 begins like this. I said in mine heart, would you note who the speaker is? Solomon said, I tried this. I said in mine heart, go to now. I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? One of the first things you and I might note then, Solomon heads his list by saying, One of the things that I tried was pleasure, mirth, I want to laugh, I want things that make me laugh. And you and I might remember that in terms of the palace and the ongoing issues in the court there in Israel, there were court jesters and there were those employed by the government for the purpose of encouraging an element in mirth in the king and his cabinet members. That philosophy that you see there, of course, wasn't just reserved for the ancient era. Maybe you and I know individuals today who still seemingly find the meaning of their life housed under the banner of mirth, pleasure. Maybe you know individuals who, quite frankly, live through the week and all that they think about and all that centers in their existence is come Friday night, I'm headed to the lake and I'll be back Sunday. That's all they live for. They live for a boat, they live for the lake. Sometimes there are other things that others insert in that, but do you notice? Recreation, pleasure, and mirth. It's as if the meaning of their life centers in that activity. May I suggest Solomon tried it. Did it work? Was that a source of happiness for him? Did you note how verse number one ended? The last four verses read like this. This Also, is vanity. Now, on that slide, I would ask you to consider that philosophy, again, was not merely reserved for those of the ancient era. If you would come with me, at least in your mind's eye, there was a philosophy rather powerfully raging during the time our Savior walked this planet. It was the Epicurean philosophy. You and I encounter that word of that famous presentation of Acts 17 when Paul appeared there on Mars Hill in the city of Athens. You might remember in verses 16 and following of that chapter, he encountered Stoics and Epicureans. Who are these Epicureans? I've summed up their entire philosophy in a rather short statement. You live here once, live it up. Whatever makes you happy, do it. Whatever you want to feel like, avail yourself of it. Seems to me there was a philosophy rather prevalent in our country back in the 1960s, somewhat like that, wasn't it? But perhaps that's a subject for another time. You might appreciate that as you contemplate those Epicurean ideas, you and I would be quick to say that an individual grounded in what truly is to be appreciated in terms of a source of happiness, they will necessarily appreciate laughter. God, after all, made your face and mine with a sufficient number of muscles, we're able to laugh. He didn't just make us to where we only can frown. In fact, in Proverbs 1722, we learn there that a merry heart is good medicine. It's good for us to be happy people, no question about that. The question is, what is it that makes us that way? I'd suggest Solomon says it's not merely mirth and living only for this idea and all of that which surrounds it. Maybe one last thing is this. Verse number 1, again closed by saying, This also is vanity. Have you ever known individuals who maybe... Used their monies, their funds, their finances to the extent that they only sought to purchase what was happiness. If I could only buy a car, if I could only buy a farm, a tractor, a house, a boat, that list could go on and on. First thing you and I can notice, Solomon tried it, and that didn't work. What else did he try? You'll notice the second thing on the slide. Would you come with me to verse number 3? Again, the first word of the sentence is I. Solomon literally affirmed, I tried this. Solomon, what did you try? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto, unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. If you and I were to put that in slightly different language, it might look something like what's on the slide. Individuals who, again, seek for the meaning in their life, what it is that brings them the greatest appreciation and happiness, some substance that alters their outlook. Well, there are many things throughout the ages that have been used. People like liquor. Cocaine, heroin, marijuana, LSD, and on and on the list goes. In more modern days, what about opioids? I'm sure all of us have seen the television commercials reminding us of the national epidemic that's facing our nation in regard to opioids. These particular substances that in them are sufficiently powerful that one has to utilize more and more of them because you get numb to the effect and they are addictive, Solomon said, I tried it. I tried it. Now, did you note the way in which he did it? It says, to give myself unto wine. Now, in that day, perhaps that was the best such substance available to him, and yet all the while acquainting mine heart with wisdom. If you read some articles, or at least those who involve themselves in this, sometimes, at least again a few years ago, it would be asserted. It is through the channel of this kind of thinking you can unclutter your mind from the modern-day problems and know more carefully the features of what truly is real. That's absolute nonsense, isn't it? As you and I will see in just a moment, the Word of God teaches exactly the opposite. But those things might lead us to appreciate this. Isn't it true that God has invested in each of us a capability of appreciation? The ability to decipher information, to draw conclusions, to reason through things, and to apply the conceptual consideration of logic to discern the best approach and course of action. God wants us to utilize our capabilities in that regard. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, borrowing the language of Isaiah 1.18, to perhaps come more to the point. In the New Testament, there is a word used on many occasions. It's the word sober, S-O-B-E-R. I understand well that that word has come in modern language to mean just one who has not been influenced by and who is not influenced at the moment, sufficiently so with alcoholic beverage. But may we never forget that's not what the New Testament word means. The New Testament word means to abstain from wine, to maintain one's complete and thorough faculty such that one is able to think carefully, clearly, and completely. Paul encouraged the Thessalonians more than once in the closing chapter, you be sober now, you be sober now, now remember, even the ancient Roman Empire was well aware of beverages and things that would dull the senses. God says, I don't want you using that, for social purposes at least. Solomon said, I tried it. I tried and it didn't work. In fact, did you note again the reading in verse number 11? In terms of summarizing the points we've just noted, he said, I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. This didn't work for Solomon. It didn't bring him happiness. What else did he try? Note the next verse with me as we look at number 3. In verses 4, 5, and 6, would you appreciate these with me? Again, the word I is what is so often used. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kind of fruits. I made me pools of water, to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. Let's summarize it like this. Solomon, again, and please remember... Solomon had at his disposal an amazing array of laborers. I might even interject this. Although this doesn't refer to his construction of the temple, remember, 180,000 workers were at his disposal, and they labored seven years to build the temple. If Solomon wanted a pool in place, all he had to do was give the word and workers would be put in order to build that particular fountain or pool. If he wanted an orchard put in place, all he had to do was give the innocent word and immediately workers would leap into action. If he wanted a gigantic palace, all he had to do was give the word and by the way, he did. He had a massive palace built. The point is, he says, I did all of this. Solomon, did it make you happy? Did you thrill at the thought and find deep-seated meaning in these pools and orchards and palaces and houses? Solomon said that he didn't. How much less than today, someone as meager as you or I, can we find an ultimate sense of satisfaction and meaning in our house, our farm, our car? Other things we might be able to bring about, our hands can do a lot. But suppose I build a wall, a house, or maybe some other fine, beautiful structure. There isn't anything wrong in those things in and of themselves. Do they make a person ultimately happy? Solomon said they didn't make him happy. I'd suggest as you and I arrive near the end of our life, you might appreciate The statement like verse number 18. I find this incredibly sad in a way. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 18. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it under the man that shall be after me. That beautiful ornate structure that you build, that house that you labored so much to put in place, you're going to die at some point. Who's going to live in it after you? Will they take as good a care of it as you did. They may, in fact, greatly tarnish and mar it, change it in an amazing way that to you is not at all acceptable. Every one of us should appreciate then that all these fine things we may work to bring about, we're going to leave them to somebody else. And they may not have anywhere near the value attached to them, you and I do. There are times as Denise and I drive to the church building here, and I know you do the same. You drive along the old Friends Creek Road, and you can easily see old farmhouses. And no doubt, 50 years ago, there's a family living there, and no doubt that house was incredibly valuable. Now it's nearly fallen completely down, nobody's living there. The floor is gone, cattle weaving in and out of it, and quite frankly, it's just about to fall and collapse. That house that may have meant so much to somebody then, now it's completely forgotten. Solomon said, you know, that is one attribute that reminds us human accomplishments are such that the finality of meaning isn't going to be found in them. While we're at that, let's add one more to it. Notice what he said in the next verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse number 7. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I labeled that one power of control. Did you notice? And isn't it true that there is something to be said for the capability in an individual to move other people in a way that's good. And you know, there are people talented this way. There are CEOs and CFOs and those who are presidents and otherwise, and they really are skilled at being able to direct individuals in a way that's productive and in a way that's progressive and in a way that's valuable. Solomon said, I had that too, you know. He said, I got me servants and maidens. As far as I know, the Old Testament doesn't indicate how many servants Solomon had. It may well have numbered into the thousands. And that doesn't even count the especial menial laborers that I mentioned earlier. Solomon had control over other people. He was the king after all. All he had to do was give the word and anybody would be commanded to do virtually anything he gave the word for I find it interesting in 1 Kings chapter 2, he even gave an interesting order on one occasion. Do you recall Joab? Well, perhaps you do. He was a rather prolific individual in the cabinet of David, Solomon's father. The time came, though, Solomon gave order, to kill him. Benaiah did it. Solomon could give the order to take that man's life, and there would be those who'd carry it out without question. The point is, he had control over others, and today there could be individuals who find the entirety of their meaning president of an organization, the manager, the controller to tell others what to do. May I suggest, if you and I think we can find meaning in that we're a very shallow person? Our existence must be based on far, far more than that, because that won't make you ultimately happy. It's so shallow. For example, look near the bottom. Solomon was such an international dignitary that the Queen of Sheba came to see him. Here was a ruling monarch of a sister kingdom, and she came just to witness and to listen to Solomon. She was impressed. So much so that in chapter 10, she would say the half of what I had heard hadn't even described what I actually now see. Solomon had it all. This didn't make him happy either. It is in that sense, I might invite you to notice, what about you and me today? You and I can be agitated by this. I've got to climb the ladder. I have got to reach higher heights. I've got to arrive at that finer echelon. Is that really what we need most? I'm thankful God can use each of us with our talents and our abilities and maybe that is a fantastic thing to do in service to God. But may we never find the meaning of our life in that. Our meaning has got to be somewhere else. In Proverbs 22, verse number 1, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor more than wisdom and honor. A good name, a name appreciated and known for something, not just climbing a proverbial ladder. Isn't it interesting, as you and I close that slide, you and I can even note today, that in the New Testament so often a reminder to you and me in verses like, James 4 verse 4, those things in this world, be they power over others, ultimately they can be utilized in a very negative way. You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. At this point, let's continue though our listing Because you notice Solomon went ahead and specifically noted this in verse 7. I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. Could I ask you to think about something a moment? Isn't it a rather fascinating thing for a person to be able to say, I am the best in the world at something? No, there are athletes like that. There might be a person who could say, I'm the best tennis player in the world. I'm ranked number one. Or another team might say, I'm the world champion. Nobody is better than us. It's true. That's an interesting and fascinating thing to be able to say. Solomon could say, nobody in the entire history of Jerusalem has owned more cattle and been more wealthy than I That's an amazing statement. Jerusalem had a long and amazing history. We first encountered that city back in the book of Genesis. And through all of that history, nowhere had there ever been a leader, a person in that city as rich and as wealthy as Solomon. I'd submit that there's a lot of people in our world who would love to try the experiment Solomon had in regard to this one to have all the money you could ever dream of. There are times even today we are utterly astounded at the finances of some. You know the CEO of Amazon as far as I know he's the richest man in the world at least the latest accounting I had seen and that number is on the order of a hundred billion dollars. That's amazing. I mean, to think about that much money, and he has it, but that isn't all. You can imagine again that there are so many others with lots and lots of money. Solomon said, I tried it. Did it make him happy? Well, it didn't in his case. Look at this with me. So many times in the Word of God, this truth is echoed so strongly for your consideration and mine. In Luke 12, verse 15... There was an occasion there when someone asked our Savior a question. In fact, there was a bit of a disagreement. Master, he said, Teacher, cause my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus was able to read into that man's heart. He was able to see what ultimately was most important to him. And Jesus responded like this, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. That's so profound. Our world continues to labor under the appreciation, at least in the mind of so many, that that is where meaning is found, but Jesus said it's not. May you and I always in wisdom appreciate that truth. To that verse, why don't we add this one in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37. Wasn't it there that Mark highlighted these famous words of our Master? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now there the Lord painted a rather amazing picture. Suppose someone could literally own the entirety of this earth and everything in it. At the judgment, will he be any the better off? What would he give in exchange for his soul? He'd give all of that. Doesn't he remind us about some greatness, some appreciation? So many truths in all these things. As you and I consider all those things, let's be quick to say it isn't wrong to have things. Many in the New Testament had things, and sometimes they were commended, but it was when those things became more important than God, that's when they were reprimanded. That's when they were told things needed to change. Number six. Look at this one. Human wisdom. Verse number nine. So I was great. You know, there isn't a lot of modesty, I guess, in that statement. I was great. Solomon affirmed it. And increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. You and I might remember that Solomon had prayed for a wise and understanding heart. He had asked God for that in 1 Kings 3. God granted him that request. And now, he could truthfully say... I am the wisest. But even in just a pure appreciation of that wisdom, he still didn't find happiness. In my line of work, and perhaps you can appreciate it too, there are individuals who value what they know to the extent that maybe it's something in relation to science, maybe it's something in relation to mathematics, gardening, cooking, any particular field could be mentioned. And someone could say, I know more than anybody else, at least around here. And maybe that is a fair statement. Question, do you find meaning of life in that? Is that going to get you to heaven? Will that knowledge, whatever it is, will that alone make you pleasing unto God? I think we know what the answer to all of these things have been. With all of that as a background, Let me now read again verses 10 and 11. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought. Did you note the verb tenses? Solomon said, I acquired these things power of control, possessions, wisdom, mirth. I acquired them. Do you get the impression that Solomon was a man who was on a mission to find something? He wanted a deep meaning in life and he wanted to know what is my purpose for living? Why am I here? And so he tried these things with an earnest and honest intent of wondering whether or not they would satisfy his longing His answer in verse 11 is, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. All that money that he had, those accomplishments that had been his, That wisdom that also he enjoyed, that command and power over others, the international recognition, in his own words, he said, all of it is vanity and vexation of spirit. Solomon, what is the meaning of life? Is life worth living? Based on this, again, you and I have to say, well, he hadn't found it yet. It's not in any of these things he's listed. I don't want to end the sermon, though, and leave us hanging to the point where we need not consider this. We're going to devote a bit of a lengthier consideration to a more positive thrust, but would you turn over to the last chapter, the 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes, and maybe this is a passage that is one of the high water marks of the book, to be sure. Verse number eight in the closing chapter says, Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And that is a book end, much like what we saw in chapter 1, verse 2. It's almost an identical statement. It starts and ends in a very similar way. But here's a little paragraph just after that statement. Verse number 9 Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, He gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further, by these, my son, be admonished of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh." A later later lesson, will develop that thought just a little bit more, but I want you to note something. The wisdom that he does lift high, Solomon had it. It says he wrote many Proverbs, and when you and I read the book of Proverbs, he was the primary author of many, many of them. But verses 13 and 14 close the book like this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment, with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Solomon then closed it all by saying, Please listen to me, he would assert. I tried all these things, and the human family has been on an an unending journey ever since to continue to try them. Your worth, your value, the meaning of your life isn't found in these six things we listed earlier. Where is it, wise man Solomon? Let us hear the conclusion of what? The whole matter. Not part of the matter, not somewhat of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. The whole duty, and quite frankly, as you read in the King James translation, the word duty is in italics. And you and I have often noted in Bible studies what that means. It means the translator supplied that word. The original language doesn't include it. Let me read it without it. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. Fearing God and keeping His commandments. That's the whole of you or me if we're wise. It's the center of who we ought to wish to be, the basis of our life. Let us make sure to conform it in the words of Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Are you and I conformed to the world? Or are we transformed by the renewing of our mind to find the meaning of our existence, the purpose for our life in fearing God and keeping His commandments? I hope you have found chapter 2 to be a stirring rendition of an experiment that a wise man tried a long time ago. In a way, we could say it failed. But on the other hand, according to verse 13, it did lead him ultimately to appreciate what is the correct answer. Tonight, as you analyze your life and as I do the same for me, are you finding the meaning of your existence in serving God, doing what pleases Him, obeying Him, knowing that this life is only for a little while? It's like that vapor recognized in James 4.13. It's going to be gone soon enough. And then once we open our eyes beyond the veil of death, where will we be? Oh, we want to be in that realm that's good and painless. And that realm that, of course, that is the very place that God would describe as a place of bliss and happiness. Now, we're going to continue our study of Ecclesiastes. There's more lessons to come. But let's close our lesson now with an invitation. If there's anyone in the audience, maybe you've never become a Christian. You have meandered at this point through life, and you have sought meaning for life in any number of things just like Solomon did, but you, like he, have found it empty. You found it vain and vanity. Remember, that word literally means emptiness. It's somewhat like a bubble. You know, when you and I blow into a a particular liquid and make a bubble, what's inside it? Nothing. Well, you don't want your life or mine to be that way, that's just a shell with nothing inside it. You want a life that's filled with fervor and meaning and hope and faith. Faith in something that's far greater than you or me. Faith in something that's a bedrock upon which an earnest and honest and meaningful life can be based. Tonight, if there would be an individual who's never become a Christian, don't you want to enjoy what verse 13 of chapter 12 of this book highlights. Fear God and keep His commandments. You must believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. If you have become a Christian, you have known that perhaps at one time. But you have allowed yourself to float along and become one who is moving in a different direction. You know a ship without an anchor is just open for danger to be blown against the bank, to be blown against the rocks, to be crushed. That in all likelihood is going to happen to you. You need an anchor that's far stronger than that. And Hebrews 6.19 says, We have an anchor sure and steadfast for the soul. It's in God. Are you anchored to Him? If you need to be tonight, why not come back to your first love? You know, you could make a confession of error known publicly. And we'd be happy to pray to God on your behalf. As you confess those things and repent all of them, He's promised to forgive them. And you can again be anchored in this truth we've read about in chapter 12, verse 13. Tonight, if anyone would wish to come, let us know the way we can help you, but do it now, for together we stand and while we sing.